Dealers. In the olden days, there were two sorts of people who traded stocks or bonds for a living. We can call them dealers and investors, though those terms are imperfect. An investor is someone who buys stocks or bonds because she thinks they are a good investment and sells them when she thinks they aren't. She does analysis, decides that bond X is worth $80, sees it trading at $78, and goes out to buy some bond X. When it trades up to $82, she sells it. She makes her money by buying low and selling high, by predicting price trends or understanding fundamental value. Investors include ordinary retail investors, but mutual funds and hedge funds are also in this category. Their job is to buy stuff that they think will go up. A dealer is the person the investors buy from and sell to. A dealer is not looking to buy stocks or bonds that she thinks are a good investment or to sell ones that she thinks are a bad investment. A bond dealer has some list of bonds and she is always willing to buy or sell each of those bonds. She is in a customer service business. Customers come to her looking to buy or sell bonds and she sells them the bonds they want to buy and buys the bonds they want to sell. She makes money not by predicting price moves, but by charging the customers, investors, a bit of money, called the spread for each trade, buying from them at a lower price her bid than she will sell to them, her offer or ask. An investor thinks, Bond X trades at $78 and is worth $80, so I will buy it. A dealer thinks, Bond X trades at $78, so I will buy it at $77.75 or sell it at $78.25, whichever customers want. She doesn't care what it's worth. She cares about charging a bit more to sell than she pays to buy. Investors could theoretically exist without dealers, and in some markets they do. Investors who think that Bond X is worth $80 could just buy it from investors who think it's worth $75 without a middleman. But in practice, it is often helpful for there to be a middleman, a dealer, to provide liquidity. An investor who thinks Bond X is worth $80 probably wants to buy it now. An investor who thinks it is worth $75 probably wants to sell it now. If they each come to that conclusion at exactly the same time, they can trade with each other and that's great. But if the seller decides to sell an hour before the buyer decides to buy, it is helpful for there to be a middleman to buy from the seller and sell to the buyer. And the seller and buyer might each be happy to pay 25 cents to get what they want when they want it. In the olden days, the dealer also provided an even more important service, which is that you knew where to find her. She was in the business of dealing stocks or bonds. She made her money by having lots of customers. She advertised. She wanted you to call her to buy or sell bonds. Dealers were traditionally big brokerage firms and investment banks. They took big investors out for drinks to get to know them and win their business. Before, like, the internet, if some investor owned Bond X and thought it was worth $75 and wanted to sell it, and some other investor didn't own Bond X and thought it was worth $80 and wanted to buy it, how would they know about each other? They wouldn't. The investor who owned Bond X would call the dealer and sell to her, and the investor who wanted Bond X would call the dealer and buy from her, because they had the dealer's phone number and knew she would be happy to buy or sell. This was pretty true about the bond market, but less true about the stock market. In the stock market, there were, and are, exchanges where all the investors could meet up and buy and sell stocks. Investors could put orders into the stock market, saying I want to buy 100 shares of stock Y for $78. And if some other investor put an order in, saying I want to sell 100 shares of stock Y for 78 then they could trade with each other without involving a dealer at all. In practice, stock exchanges normally do involve dealers, 
because there is often some imbalance between investors who want to buy and those who want to sell. But at least the exchange is a way of coordinating investor buyers and investor sellers without having to call a dealer. If you wanted to sell a bond, you knew to call Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers or whoever. If you wanted to sell a New York Stock Exchange-listed stock, you knew to send an order to NYSE. In practice, you would do that through a broker like Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers because you couldn't just stroll out on the floor of the stock exchange, but still. But at least in the bond markets, there was a pretty clear distinction between investors and dealers, which is that dealers advertised we buy and sell bonds, call us. And investors did not. But then the internet arrived. Communications technology became vastly better, and everything went electronic. And now if you want to buy or sell bonds or currencies or interest rate swaps or cryptocurrencies, etc., you can often go to some electronic platform and put in an order, just like you would on the stock exchange. And that platform will collect your orders and the orders of lots of other people, and it will show the orders to everyone else on the platform. And match up buyers and sellers. You don't need to remember I want to sell bonds and I happen to know Morgan Stanley is in the business of buying bonds, I should call them. You can just type sell bonds at $78 into the electronic system and Morgan Stanley or BlackRock or PIMCO or Fidelity or Citadel Securities or anyone else can buy them. One possible outcome of this widespread electronification would be that investors would trade directly with investors and dealers would wither away in bond, currency, swaps, crypto, etc. markets. There would be no bid-ask spreads, no intermediation. Long-term owners would sell directly to other long-term owners at the mid-market price. You often see predictions like this, but they rarely come true. Even in open electronic all-to-all markets, dealers seem to provide some value by buying immediately when investors want to sell and selling immediately when investors want to buy, and investors are generally willing to pay a spread to get that immediacy. But another, maybe more surprising outcome is that investors can be dealers now. If you run a hedge fund and try to buy bonds that you think will go up, and you connect to an electronic trading platform and trade a lot on it, you might notice some short-term opportunities. You know Bond X is trading at $78, you think it's worth $80, but someone comes onto the platform with an order to buy a lot of Bond X. You might say well okay I'll sell her some Bond X at $78.25, because she's desperate to buy it now and will pay a bit more than the current market price, and then in 10 minutes someone else will come along looking to sell it and I'll buy it back from him at $77.75 and make a quick 50 cents. Maybe you also have a big long-term investment position in Bond X that you won't close out until it hits $80, but you know that people make money by buying at the bid and selling at the offer and collecting the spread, and you figure you can do a little bit of that too. You can conceive of this as dealing, or market-making, or collecting the spread. You can do what dealers do, and put orders into the electronic platform on both sides of the market. You can put in an order to buy 100 bonds at $77.75 and another order to sell 100 bonds at 78.25 and hope that both of those orders will be executed and you'll collect the spread. But you can also conceive of it in other ways. You can think of it as just short-term day trading, just spotting opportunities, just buying low from someone looking to unload bonds at a bit below the fair market price, and selling high minutes earlier or later to someone looking to buy bonds at a bit above the fair market price. There is some continuum between put in orders on both sides of the market to collect the spread and buy and sell quickly to capitalize on small temporary mispricings. 
Also, again, technology has improved, and probably what you have actually done is program a computer to recognize patterns in the market and put in these orders for you. Your algorithm might be of the form put in buy and sell orders 25 cents away from the fair price in either direction, or it might be of the form if the bond falls 25 cents below the fair price, buy it, but if it rises 25 cents above the fair price, sell it. But those are the same algorithm. And, you can end up doing this, as your entire business, or you can do some of it alongside your normal investory business of making longer-term directional bets on bonds that you think will go up, and you can evolve over time to do more of one or the other as markets change or as you hire different personnel or whatever. And you can do all this without advertising. You don't have to be in a customer service business. You don't have to hang out a big sign saying we buy and sell bonds, call us. Nobody calls anyone anymore. You just send little electronic messages to the trading platform saying the prices at which you want to buy or sell bonds. And that is all the advertising you need. You could get into customer service. If you start doing enough of this sort of trading, you might decide to set up meetings with big investors to see what they want to buy and sell and to try to trade with them more. And some firms do, but it is not strictly necessary. You can have the trading model of a dealer, making markets, providing liquidity, making the bid slash ask spread, without the traditional business model of a dealer, salespeople, customer service, advertising. In other words, in the olden days, there was a distinction between dealers who provided liquidity and advertised and investors who made directional bets and did not advertise. Now there are dealers who provide liquidity and advertise and investors who make directional bets and don't advertise. And also some other people, quasi-dealers, who provide liquidity and don't advertise. And some people, investor dealers, who sometimes provide liquidity and other times just make directional bets and never advertise. The distinctions are less sharp because modern technology lets everyone do a little of everything and change their strategies as circumstances change. I mostly just think this is sort of an interesting sociological fact, that the trading model of providing liquidity has become much more anonymous and electronic and divorced from the social model of having drinks with customers, and that non-traditional dealers can now do it. And it is probably good for competition. If everyone can compete to buy from sellers and sell to buyers, then the costs of liquidity should go down. But there is a news hook. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission regulates dealers more strictly than it regulates regular investors. Dealers have to register with the SEC and be members of self-regulatory organizations, mainly the stock exchanges and FINRA. They are subject to various risk and capital and record-keeping rules. It is more expensive to be an SEC-registered dealer than not to be. In the olden days, this was pretty straightforward. If you wanted to go around advertising your bond dealing services, you had to register with the SEC, and the SEC would keep an eye on you to make sure that you were doing a fine upstanding job of serving investors and not blowing yourself up. The investors were the customers, and the SEC protected them, the dealers were the industry, and the SEC regulated them. But now the distinction is much less clear, and yesterday the SEC published new rules about who is and isn't a dealer. The old rule in the text of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, says that the term dealer means any person engaged in the business of buying and selling securities for such person's own account, unless that person buys or sells securities for such person's own account, either individually or in a fiduciary capacity, but not as a part of a regular business. Emphasis added. In 1934, everyone kind of knew what that meant. If you bought securities and held them, you were not buying and selling as part of a regular business. 
But if you went around advertising, I'll buy or sell bonds, call me, you were. In 2024, things are less clear, so the SEC wants to clarify them. The new rules say, A person that is engaged in buying and selling securities for its own account is engaged in such activity as a part of a regular business, if that person, 1. Engages in a regular pattern of buying and selling securities that has the effect of providing liquidity to other market participants, by, I. Regularly expressing trading interest that is at or near the best available prices on both sides of the market for the same security and that is communicated and represented in a way that makes it accessible to other market participants, or Earning revenue primarily from capturing bid-ask spreads by buying at the bid and selling at the offer, or from capturing any incentives offered by trading venues to liquidity supplying trading interest. There are exceptions, including for central banks, registered investment companies, mutual funds, and people with under $50 million of assets. But the point of this is pretty clearly to capture hedge funds and proprietary trading firms that make markets, often electronically, in bond markets, particularly treasury markets. If those firms regularly post interest on both sides of the market, if they regularly say I'll buy bond X at $77.75 or sell it at $78.25, or if they make money mostly from bid-ask spreads, then they are dealers. This strikes me as more or less conceptually correct, in the narrow sense. Yes, making two-sided markets and collecting the spread is the traditional model of the dealer, and this definition is clearer than the regular business thing. In the broader sense, it strikes me as a bit incoherent. Why should people who make two-sided markets be regulated more strictly than people who make directional bets? The old reason, the dealers were the industry and the directional bettors were the customers, is no longer really true. The apparent reason is something like, firms that run dealer-type strategies in the treasury bond market are much more levered than firms that just buy and hold treasury bonds. SEC Chair Gary Gensler's statement about the new rules reminisces about old-time treasury dealer collapses and goes on. In 2021, when I arrived at the SEC, I was told that though numerous firms have registered with the SEC as government securities dealers, some market participants have not. I think that leaves potential regulatory gaps and risk in the system. The markets also have evolved in other ways, such as electronification, the use of algorithmic trading, and market participants transacting faster than ever before. Some market participants, such as principal trading firms, PTFs, that use high-frequency trading strategies, started participating significantly in the Treasury cash market. In 2019, for example, PTFs represented around 60% of the volume on the interdealer broker, IDB, platforms in the Treasury markets. In essence, these PTFs and other firms are acting in a manner consistent with dealers in the securities markets. Nevertheless, despite these firms acting as de facto market makers, and despite their regularity of participation consistent with buying and selling securities or government securities as a part of a regular business, a number of these firms have not registered with the commission as dealers. This deprives investors and the markets themselves of important protections, protections that benefit market integrity, resiliency, transparency, and more. I suppose there is some truth to this, that the trading business of making markets in treasury bonds tends to be more leveraged than the investing business of buying treasuries because you think they are valuable. But it's still pretty porous. The Wall Street Journal reports. An earlier version of the SEC's dealer rule would have likely roped in many large hedge funds. Any person or firm that bought or sold more than $25 billion in government bonds in four of the preceding six months would have automatically been classified as a securities dealer under a March 2022 proposal from the SEC. 
so would firms that routinely made roughly comparable purchases or sales of similar securities in one day. Hedge funds and their trade groups howled at the proposal and felt it threatened the profitability of investing strategies like quant, arbitrage and relative value trading, which seeks to capitalize on pricing discrepancies between different securities. In comments submitted to the SEC, hedge fund firms argued that requiring them to register as dealers would deprive them of certain investor protections. They argued there would be unintended consequences, including the prevention of them from participating in initial public offerings. Hedge fund firms also complained that the SEC was exempting mutual funds and other types of asset managers from the additional requirements. The SEC ultimately scrapped the $25 billion threshold and some other parts that the industry criticized. Nevertheless, an SEC analysis identified up to 16 private funds, a category that includes hedge funds, that could fit its revised definition of a dealer, an agency official said at the meeting. The basic business is using borrowed money to buy and sell lots of treasuries fairly quickly because you have a computer model that tries to take advantage of pricing discrepancies. If those pricing discrepancies are bid-ask spreads, you're a dealer. If they're not, you're not. Wait. We talked yesterday about Adam Newman's apparent desire to buy WeWork Inc. out of bankruptcy. Newman's lawyer sent WeWork's lawyers a letter on Monday to express our dismay with WeWork's lack of engagement even to provide information to my clients in what is intended to be a value-maximizing transaction for all stakeholders. WeWork does not seem to be talking constructively with Newman, even though he consistently expressed his sincere interest in purchasing WeWork or its assets out of bankruptcy and or providing the debtors with dip financing. The letter also notes that Newman is partnering with well-known capital sources including Dan Loeb's Third Point LLC and others to try to buy or finance WeWork. Here is an amazing fact about that partnership. Third Point told the Financial Times that it held only preliminary conversations with Flo, Newman's property company, and Adam Newman about their ideas for WeWork, and has not made a commitment to participate in any transaction. Executives from Third Point, Japanese conglomerate SoftBank and Newman, last held an official meeting to discuss a potential bid for the company in October, people familiar with the process said. It's February. If you are dropping Third Point's name now, and you last had preliminary conversations with them in October, that suggests that your bid is not all that real. If you had any better meetings with anyone else since October, you'd be dropping their name rather than Third Point's. There is always a chicken and egg quality to these things. Newman obviously can't line up committed financing to buy WeWork without getting due diligence information and some engagement from WeWork, and he can't get serious engagement from WeWork without credible financing. Still, you can sort of understand why WeWork is not engaging with Newman, besides the obvious reasons. Elsewhere, the Wall Street Journal reports that Newman courted a group of WeWork's largest creditors to try and convince them that they should support his efforts to line up a bid for the company, but they declined, according to people familiar with the talks. Did that group include SoftBank Group Corporation? I feel like if I ran SoftBank's WeWork investment at this point, I would sell it all to Adam Newman for $1 and a legally binding promise that I would never hear from him again. Carlisle. Stereotypically, shareholders of publicly traded financial firms really value steady recurring earnings and really distrust lumpy performance-based earnings. They put a high multiple on annual fee income and a low multiple on one-time trading profits. So if you are a private equity firm charging clients annual management fees of 2% of assets and performance fees of 20% of profits, the shareholders will like the management fees and dislike the performance fees. Stereotypically, if you want to keep your employees hungry and motivated, 
you should pay them with a lot of lumpy performance-based bonuses and not a lot of steady recurring salaries. Don't pay them to coast. Make them earn their money. If you are a private equity firm charging 2 and 20 you can use some of those management fees to pay salaries, but your employees should expect to make most of their money from performance, from the 20% performance fees. Obviously, there is a trade there. You give the shareholders the recurring fees that they like, and you give the employees the profit interest that you like for them. Bloomberg's Don Lim reports. Carlyle Group Inc. is overhauling how it pays dealmakers to free up steadier cash flows for shareholders and authorized a plan to repurchase as much as $1.4 billion of stock. The private equity giant, which reported fourth-quarter earnings that beat Wall Street estimates, said Wednesday that it will give rainmakers and senior employees a greater share of gains tied to investment exits. The move frees up more stable sources of cash known as fee-related income to shareholders. Carlyle plans to lift employees' share of profits tied to deal exits to 60 to 70 percent, up from an average of 47 percent, the company said in a statement. The portion of their compensation tied to fee-related earnings will fall. Plausibly, the dealmakers would also prefer to have more steady fee-related income, but you want to keep them hungry. Bankroll size? The Kelly criterion tells you what percentage of your money you should put on some favorable bet. If you work in financial markets, you want to make a bunch of bets where you think the odds are in your favor, and if you can estimate the odds then Kelly gives you a guide to how much of your money you should put on each bet. Kelly gives you an answer that is a percentage of your current bankroll. But what is your bankroll? We talked a few times last year about a dumb story from Sam Bankman-Fried's internship at Jane Street, where he kept making the maximum bet on slightly favorable coin flips, and I was like, well, that's not very Kelly, is it? But probably I was wrong. Jane Street interns were limited to losing $100 per day, so I sort of took $100 to be the size of his bankroll and thought he was aggressive to bet it all on a 51% coin flip. But readers pointed out, no, come on, his net worth at the time was not $100. $100 was nothing to him, even though it was all he could bet that day. As a percentage of his actual bankroll, that was a fine bet. Anyway, here is a fun post from Bern Hobart titled, What's the True Bankroll? Sometimes the true bankroll is much bigger than the obvious bankroll. Sam Bankman-Fried's $100 daily betting allowance was much smaller than his true bankroll. And Hobart points out that if you start your first job and have $1,000 to invest, your true bankroll is more like your lifetime expected savings than it is your current $1,000. Other times the true bankroll might be smaller than the obvious bankroll. If you are a portfolio manager at a multi-manager hedge fund, and you run a $500 million portfolio, you might think that your bankroll is $500 million. But if you know that you'll get fired for a 10% decline in your portfolio, is your actual bankroll $50 million? No but also maybe a little bit yes. Things happen. Liquidity unmasked. Nike B's credit grade is cut to junk by Moody's. UBS to restart buybacks after progress on Credit Suisse integration. UBS offers $1 billion AT1s in fast start to its funding plan. How India's education tech giant got schooled and lost $20 billion in value. U.S. commercial real estate contagion is now moving to Europe. China replaces top markets regulator as Xi tries to end route. Shine seeks Chinese regulators' tacit approval for U.S. public offering. Star China banker's disappearance made his firm a buyout target. McKinsey and BCG warn staff face jail if they reveal Saudi work. HSBC's new wise killer app vies for FX customers. Woodside, Santos N talks on merger to create $57 billion energy giant. Tesla asks which jobs are critical, stoking layoff fears.
Oregon playing 639-year-long peace changes court. If you'd like to get Money Stuff in Handy email form right in your inbox, please subscribe at this link, or you can subscribe to Money Stuff and other great Bloomberg newsletters here. Thanks. The U.S. securities and exchange literature sometimes calls them dealers and traders, but trader to me feels more generic. A trader at a bank is ordinarily a dealer. Investor is imperfect because it has a bit of a long-term connotation, which I don't intend. Speculator would be fine for investor but people sometimes take it as pejorative. Market maker is, I think, generally a good synonym for dealer. Perhaps some markets are totally disintermediated and fundamental investors just trade with each other. But many markets are intermediated only by brokers, not dealers. The brokers match up the fundamental buyers and sellers, but do not trade for their own account. These patterns are not always stable. U.S. single-family housing has historically been almost entirely a broker-intermediated market. The person who owns a house usually lives there, or owns it as a long-term investment, and then sells it to someone else who wants to live there, or own it as an investment. There are brokers to match buyers and sellers who take a cut, but the brokers don't buy the house from the seller with their own money and then sell it to the buyer. But that has changed a little bit with e.g. Zillow Group Inc. getting into, and then out of, algorithmic house market making in recent years. Or it won't, it will have hidden orders, etc., but in any case your orders will have some way of interacting with other people's orders. I am exaggerating for simplicity. In the bond markets, lots of people call each other. The text more accurately describes treasury trading than, like, high-yield corporate trading, but even in treasuries people use the phone, or at least Bloomberg chats. There is a similar definition of government securities dealer, which is not the same thing as a regular dealer but is a parallel definition for treasury bonds. And this one is probably more important for this week's rulemaking, which seems primarily focused on treasury trading. The lawyer is Alex Spiro, who is also Elon Musk's lawyer, and who seems to have a lot of fun.